Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we discuss the two greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am your weekly co-host, Joe Hilliard, joined always by Dave Gurney and nobody else. We, we, we're Just here. It's the two of us. <laughs> We can make it if we try. Oh, yeah. You Come on. I. We, we can do this, Joe. If, oh, yeah. Listen, if, if you've been with us on this journey of over, what, we're in like the 270s yes, for episodes. Um, we, we've we've played around a little with the format here or there, but things are pretty solid. And it's usually at least three of these voices, three voices um, talking about a film. But sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you have to bring it down to back to basics, maybe. Sometimes you tell people what movie you're doing and everyone says, no! Well, that's true. <laughs> that wasn't exactly the case. But, we, you know, we won't go into that. But whatever the case may be that has led us here, I'm excited to be Me talking too. about these films. Me too. And, you know, without a third person here, it means there's more beer to go around, Joe. So Good point. Because our first feature is set in British aristocracy, I found the most fancy bottle of beer I could get. And this is a, our first time to Funk Factory Guzaria out of Madison, Wisconsin. And they are known, among other things, but primarily for their spontaneously fermented beers. And this one in a bottle with a cork, as fancy as we could get, it's called Framrude. This is their vintage 2017. Vintage 2017. Love it. I will read from their website. This release represents the third iteration of Framrude, our method traditionnel blend aged on two pounds per gallon of red raspberries from a local Wisconsin berry farm. The spontaneous barrels used in this blend were mostly two years old, but we also chose several one-year-old barrels, as well as a single three-year-old barrel. While blending, we aimed to build the complex flavor profile that's become a signature of previous Framrude releases, but also sought out barrels with mellow acidity and oaky characteristics to balance the natural acid content of the fruit. They only yielded 1,667 bottles of this. We're holding one of 1,616.17. At this point, there's probably only a handful of those left. Well, maybe not a handful, but but less than there were when it was first produced, right? If it started at 16-something, we're probably down under 1,000 circulating out there, sitting in people's cellars. Now we're at 999, because <laughs> I just popped it open, and I can't wait to get it in my glass. The aroma that came out of the bottle six inches, 12 inches from my face when it was already all over me. This okay. one is going to be, I think, a treat, David. Ooh. As you pass the bottle to me, I'm smelling that aroma you were talking about. I'm excited. I'm getting some of that raspberry, but also some of that, those sort of spontaneous fermentation notes that you get. There, There's there's some sourness, I expect, that's going to be in there. I hope so. But also some kind of uh, funky flavors, yeah. so to speak. The name funk is in the brewery it, you know, name. We, we go back to it all the time because here in the state of Texas, if, if you're going to do this kind of thing, it's Jester King, right? I mean, Jester King is the brewery that kind of brought a lot of these methods here to the state of Texas started doing the spontaneous fermentation stuff. We've done some of their spontaneously fermented beer on the podcast before. So I'm excited to be hitting another brewery doing this and already on the nose, like, Yes, I'm getting the raspberry, but I'm getting some of those familiar notes that I get with a Jester King beer. Yeah, and look, this must, it doesn't say unfiltered anywhere on the website or on but the bottle. Not. It, it yeah. has to be unfiltered because oh, it yeah. is a murky, you can see some remnants of raspberry all in this. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. You know, we're going to be speaking about two 
really interesting films today, but we'll be speaking about a third on After Hours because you and I also had a chance to see Dream Scenario. We did. We're going to talk about it briefly in After Hours, maybe a tiny review, reserving the right to maybe keep it for a future Cage Match episode, which our next one is episode 300. Which won't be that far from now. Can you believe it? No, it, 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 they always come up more quickly than I realized. But before we get there, the new release that we're going to be talking about is a film by a filmmaker who we were really um, impressed by uh, not that long ago when her feature debut hit the screens. And this was kind of during that, you know, COVID streaming era, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, so we were, we were watching this one at home at the time. That was Promising Young Woman, the, the filmmaker Emerald Fennell. Uh, who had really spent many years as an actress on the other side of the camera, but then had sort of made the transition, I think had maybe done some TV work on the other side, but Promising Young Woman was her real breakout as a, as a film director. That was episode 128. Thank we, you. We paired it with Pieces of a Woman. See what we did there? Clever. Clever. Two new releases at the time. We do that. I think we're going to do that next week. Maybe mm-hmm. We'll talk about that after hours. What we have here, though, is her second feature, which... I had been seeing the trailer all fall long. Yeah. The trailer, the film, of course, that we're talking about is Saltburn. She wrote it as well as directed it, as with Promising Young Woman. Here, though, she does bring back Carrie Mulligan, mm-hmm. who we remember from Promising Young Woman, yeah. in a much smaller role, kind of a, a small supporting role uh, in this one. But the leads here being Barry Kagan. Yeah who folks will remember probably from Banshees of Inishirin most recently. Wonderful in that movie. It Really? A, an amazing performance, yeah. I think, on many levels. And uh, Jacob Elordi, who folks will remember from just a few episodes back, playing Elvis yeah. in the uh, Priscilla film that Sofia Coppola directed. So two younger, up-and-comer kind of stars who are really breaking out and, and you know, making their uh, reputations on some pretty interesting films here, starring as Oliver Quick... That's the Kagan character and uh, Jacob Elordi's Felix character. Felix being one who is an upper crust uh, elite sort of aristocrat in England, uh, shows up at Oxford and Oliver, who is of more humble sure. background, though, as he describes it, seemingly almost Near working poverty. class, yeah. impoverished. Oliver uh, being somewhat the outsider not part of the elite social circles already kind of established going into the school is looking for a place to be looking for a place to uh connect doesn't really want to connect with the other guy who who seems to be the other the, nerd the other nerd at the school who's just really smart and got in there because uh, who tells him this is us we are outcasts mm-hmm. and surely we're going to be friends because no one else wants to be right. friends with us right and oliver kind of fixates on felix and through certain events, ends up becoming closer to Felix, yeah. becoming friends with Felix, even to the point where when the school break happens, Felix invites him to stay with his family at their summer estate, Saltburn, or their, their estate, I should say, Saltburn, meeting Felix's family and various hangers-ons right. and people who, who would associate with that. Attending sort of parties, upper-crust upper lifestyle. Yes, absolutely. Now, that's all on the premise that Oliver reveals to Felix that his father has passed. Yeah. And that his mother, who is racked with addiction and other problems. Unfit to spend time around. Exactly. It, it was going to be a terrible break for him. So, so Felix kind of invites him along. And, and that sort of sets a plot in motion where the bulk of the action happens at that Saltburn estate 
as Oliver gets to know the rest of Felix's family and and some of the other people who associate with Felix. The family. mother played by Rosamund Pike, right. the father played by Richard E. Grant, a sister played by Allison Oliver, and Farley, the uh, cousin to the Felix character treated somewhat like a black sheep of the family for various reasons because his mother's really a black sheep of the family spending her is going through all of her money right right and th- that grant richard grant the father sort of controls the purse strings on that family right. fortune and is only meeting it out as he sees fit i think that everything you just described about this film was presented in the trailer which mm-hmm. is the only thing that i knew about this movie going into it okay then a friend of mine in a chat group that I'm in with some high school friends said, oh my God, I just saw Saltburn. Has anyone seen it? I need to talk about it because A, I don't think I've seen anything like it and B, I've got a lot of questions. She was quick to say, I cannot tell you anything about this movie. It is best for you to go in as blind as possible. And I think the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you are listening and you have not seen this movie, we are a spoiler podcast and we've got to get into every single portion of it. Yeah. But if you have not seen Saltburn and rarely we do this, I'm going to suggest you skip forward to the second movie and come back after you've seen it. I agree. I'm also going to suggest that you go see it. Yeah. I mean, cards on the table. This is a movie. My friend was right. Unlike almost anything I've ever seen on film. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I will say right out of the gate that I also recommend that people see this film. I think it's, I think before I get into anything too critical about the film. Oh, I'm curious about that. Or at least questions that I have about I have plenty. the film. I want to say this to me proves that Fennel, it wasn't a, a one-hit wonder situation. Mm-hmm. Promising Young Woman wasn't just a promising debut that got followed up by something. No, this this shows that she is a serious filmmaker who has interesting ideas that are going to be worth seeing on screen for years to come. So, yes, you, I think unless she proves me wrong with subsequent releases, I'm going to say from here on out, just plan on seeing her films as they're released in theaters. I think the performances here are pretty excellent across the board. I, the, some of the cast that, you know, we've already talked about, all of them are doing standout jobs. Kagan, who, like we said, with Banshees of Inishirin, we really loved there is nothing less than an exceptional performance by every single actor in this film. Right. Period. I think he's, you know, batting a thousand from my perspective with mm-hmm. this. Alordi, I think, had more to chew on than he did even with Elvis and, and Priscilla. And for those who are familiar with him from Euphoria, I think even that series, I think here he, he's, he's stretching a little bit more. You know, he still is trading on his looks, let's face it. I mm-hmm. mean, he, the, Handsome oh, dude. So let's get into it, right? Can I think, we get into it by saying Linus Sandgren's name, the DP? Oh, sure. Uh, he is best known for his collaborations with Damien Chazelle. He won an Oscar for La La Land with yep. uh, Chazelle, David O. Russell, Gus Van Zant. There are, and you, I'm stealing a phrase that you'll sometimes say, David, there are pictures in this movie that you could get a high definition print of and yeah. put on your wall as a piece of art. Yeah. Draw, uh, draw, draw, draw jopping scenes or shots in this film. The one that leaps to mind is the one where the camera's upside down. He's, uh, and Barry Keegan's laying on the ground, but it looks like he's laying on the ceiling, so yeah. to speak, looking down on a lake. When he's wearing antlers at a costume party, walking through the maze, and there's, yeah. uh, there's shrubbery on both sides of him and just his face lighting the antlers. This film is beautiful, beautiful to watch. Totally agree. Amazing cinematography that I think reinforces the story and and draws out some of the themes. A lot of reflective surfaces. You mentioned the water. There's some this idea of characters being split in two ways, like they're presenting themselves one way, but then appearing a different way to other. And so I wholeheartedly agree. You know, it's set up 
in some ways as a, I don't know, correct me if, if you saw it differently, as, as sort of a homoerotic coming of age story in a sense, even though these guys are a little bit older than what we would typically think of as coming of age. You know, we meet Kagan's character, Oliver, at a point that he doesn't seem to really know himself. He doesn't seem to have a clear identity of his own a set of romantic pursuits he's not looking his pursuit is of felix is a, is of a lordy's character and like i said a lordy is clearly this you know big man on campus yeah and and you know wanted by many women yeah. um in fact there is a scene you know even before we get to saltburn where there's a girl who had been seeing felix who's sort of snubbed by felix and then shows up kind of drunkenly and sort of talks to oliver because oliver's a pal of felix right and isn't like oh well this and you know go there to just kind of well will this make him jealous and and you know that goes a certain degree towards but oliver kind of shuts that down by saying well i don't even know if he'll notice right <laughs> and you know and that kind of ends ends that potential like tryst that he was about to have with the girl so that you know she takes off but from there and it, it feels like oliver to me it feels like oliver is much more interested in uh, felix than he is anybody else in yeah. this film and the voiceover narration that begins the film Right. Is this meditation on like, did I love him? Was I really in love with him? Mm -hmm. Da, 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 da. To me, this was set up as sort of a homoerotic. When are we going to get to the point where we see him make that pass? When we see him go a little too far. And the film toys with us in some ways, I think, as an audience, where it steps us closer and closer to thinking something like that is going to happen. And we know that there is a wealth divide because... For sure. Oliver presents himself as penniless, basically. It's his turn to buy a round of drinks at the bar. And he tries to get out of it because he doesn't have the money to go buy the shots for 10 people, whatever it is. Felix sees the dilemma that he's in and makes up a story. Hey, you must have dropped, dropped this hundred dollar bill, hundred pound note on the ground. And that allows Oliver to buy the shots without embarrassing Oliver. So right. Felix seems to be kind of, you know, into. But what I didn't know until we get to Saltburn is just how wealthy Felix is. Mm. He's wealthier than Oliver, sure. But when we get to Saltburn and see the size of the estate and the fact that there are footmen and a butler and the way that they eat food and have parties and just, you know, going from a tour of the place when he first gets here. Here's the green room. Here's the red room. Here's this maze labyrinthine mansion. Mm -hmm. And your room is in here. In fact, we're going to have a Hollywood bath situation, two bedrooms sharing the same bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Important. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of what steps us even closer in that homoeroticism, at least at a certain point in the film. Yeah. But it also becomes clear, you know, as the time at Saltburn goes on, that the interest goes beyond just uh, Felix yeah. and oh, and it extends into, you know, again, you, you've mentioned the sister character, Venetia, that uh, Oliver starts having interactions with, let's say, and that inspires some jealousy from Felix yeah. and, and Felix kind of pushes back on it and, and, and in his way and tells him, well, that really ruined my friendship with, you know, basically your predecessor, the mm -hmm. person I brought home before. Right. Kind of gets him to try to go a little bit more undercover with it in, in a way, whatever he's doing with Venetia. He even gets kind of entangled with Farley uh, the, as the time goes on where the American cousin where, where, you know, he goes into his room at night and sort of corners him on his bed mm -hmm. and uh, ends up, you know, um, well, I mean, well, ends up doing what? Because uh, I, I want to make sure that we saw the same my, thing. My, it's all in shadow. Yeah. No, he's on top of him. Right. And he's clearly touching his. My guess is genitalia. We're, we're, 
<laughs> I'm, I always get a hard time. I need somebody here to call me out on my trying to find word to cover hand job. Right. I, I believe he's. I believe he's giving him a handy in the in the bed. He, Oliver is giving Farley the hand job. That's what I believe. That's what I thought too. But a couple of people thought that he was masturbating himself on, on top Farley. of Farley. Well, either way, we're not given. We're not showing. Farley's reactions make me think he's being touched. Agreed. Okay. That I took the same thing away there. Right. Yeah. So here we go. You're going to get with a girl at school. So you've got some heterosexual impulses, but were those just a cover because really you have homosexual impulses, but with Farley, there is no, there is no mistake. Uh, they have a little thing one night, right. which plays into a greater plan of Oliver's, not just a tryst. Okay. So where I start feeling like this film, I'm not totally sure it nails what it's going for. I, for one thing, I think it's doing some great class-based sure. satire. But nothing we haven't seen before. No. Talented Mr. Ripley leads to mind where sure. Matt Damon's character is just enamored with the glamour and, right. and the, the jet-setting lifestyle right. of the Jude Law character in that movie. There's a long list of these kinds of things. Yes. Lower class, rubbing shoulders with upper class, getting so excited about the upper class lifestyle that they, in, in talented Mr. Ripley, kill to try to keep right. it. And, and in this case, you know, Saltburn, it becomes apparent later in the film that, uh, that at the very least, Oliver has lied to gain his way in. As, as you know, I had said earlier, part of the story was my father's just died. My mom's a horrible wreck as a drug addict. I can't go home to that. Well, lo and behold, when uh, Felix sort of forces him surprises him yeah i mean takes him uh without telling him on his birthday to go visit his mother he thinks uh to visit oliver's mother uh when they arrive they realize oliver's dad is fully alive they don't live in a squalid house comfortable home comfortable middle class life but we also learn in that scene that oliver always was quote-unquote weird never had friends so Many people, when they go to college from high school, they, they will try to adopt a new personality. All of the stuff, all of the bullshit from high school, sure. I'm leaving behind. I can reinvent myself, so mm -hmm. to speak. But Oliver reinvents himself into a pauper. Question number one. Oliver didn't know Felix before he got to Oxford. He met Felix at Oxford. So the plan that we'll get into, I'm imagining, is being created on the fly at the beginning. Well, we don't know. That's why we're okay. So let, let's just get it out there because the the final twist of the film, mm -hmm. right? Once we get to where, let's just say, Felix dies, um, the family's kind of ruined in the aftermath of that, in the sense that Venetia commits suicide. Mm -hmm. um, the sister, right? The the father dies a few years later, but we jump forward in time. Now we we haven't mentioned the the film is set. In the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. when they show up at the school, it says class of 2006, which means it, it must be 2002. Well, that's how I, but a lot of reviewers I've seen have said it's set in 2006. And I don't know if that's no, no, no. the way the UK labels their classes. Oh, okay. If you're labeled by entry year rather than exit year, okay. but I, I, whatever it is, it's early to mid 2000s. Right. We jump forward in time to more our current day, mm -hmm. like, right, it's 2022 or whatever. So. Yeah. Just after uh, the father has died and uh, Rosamund Pike, the, uh, Felix's mother, kind of finds him 
happenstance in a coffee shop and they reconnect and it ends up becoming that he's the one who's kind of put down as the caretaker of Saltburn when she passes, which happens rather quickly thereafter. And he he has Saltburn. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we're shown through like this quick series of flashbacks that show us moments that we were deprived as they were unfolding in the film, how those events, some that we've talked about, the one at the bar where he goes to pay for the drinks and he supposedly doesn't have the money. We see that he actually had bills in his wallet and he's just kind of pushing them to the side and pretending he doesn't have the money. Venetia, having committed suicide, he's the one who left the blades right by the bathtub after she had been in this vulnerable state and was drinking and, you know, whatever. The day after his brother died? Her brother died? Yeah. It was after the funeral, so maybe a few days. Right, maybe a few days after. Um, (laughs) And uh, we see him uh, after that tryst with Farley you know, turning over in bed and pulling Farley's phone and sending an email that was incriminating towards Farley. And that, that gets him was, kicked out was of the sort family, of the thing yeah. that got him pushed out of the family. So, so we see that, oh, wow. He's was, been a mastermind at work. Right. Now, that to me was not much of a twist because it was clear to me at that point that he was a manipulator. And I'm not when sure. When his lie about his parents is discovered. Well, that... And the way he was, the, the relationship with Venetia unfolded, the, it was clear to me that he was doing something there to mess with her more. He wasn't actually interested in her. He wasn't actually, you know, trying to even make Felix jealous necessarily or something. He was just doing that to like kind of pull her in so that he had some control over her and had this kind of connection with her. Whatever the case is, it didn't feel like as much of a twist as I felt like Fennel wanted me to think it was at that moment in the film. How did you feel about it? That that was the I think it's, it's the biggest the, thing that stuck with me where like this feels like one of those haha mm-hmm. and it didn't feel like a haha. Uh, usual suspects. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw Usual Suspects and what's the guy's name? What's Spacey? Chaz, what's Chaz Palmentary's character? Kuntz? No. Oh. Detective Kuntz. Anyway. Yeah. He's drinking his cup of coffee and he puts the whole thing together. Yeah. I'm learning at that moment that Kaiser right. Soze is, right. you know, it was the same concept. Yeah. However, the masterminding here isn't as mm, sophisticated. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie so much. Yeah. But that is the part that makes me say, okay, what if they took that part out? Yeah. And then ended with the same dance scene, which I know we'll talk about. <laughs> the triumphal dance through the the estate that I have finagled yeah. my ownership of. Right. And I have absolutely no right to, except for... Having been in the right place at the right time. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't bother me too, too much. Yeah. I need to see the movie again. Yeah. I don't think it it's something that, like, uh, that, that deeply, deeply bothers me and makes me not like it's the like film. It's like the pharmacy scene in Promising <laughs> Young Woman. <laughs> Without it, the movie would have been so much better. And I, I think maybe you're, you have hit onto something that seems to be the biggest criticism that I've read about. Because it is a movie that invites research because yeah, it, it is, like I said, something I've, I've never seen before. Yeah. I, Certain I, things I've never seen I before. just feel like I'm worried. So, again, I, I started the review, my review, by saying I think that Fennel is a great filmmaker. This, to me, sort of helps prove that. Sure. It wasn't just a fluke the first time, and I'm looking forward to what she does after this. But I do think she maybe has something she needs to work through with, does she need to be a twist filmmaker? Because I feel like she's doing that now, consecutive films. That's true. And in this one, I don't know that it buys her that much, because I think it becomes pretty clear 
you know, two thirds of the way into the film that, yeah, he is actually pulling a lot of strings here and he is the one who's kind of in control of these situations and he's gaining their um, their acceptance, if not their love and devotion and then using that against them and 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 manipulating them in ways um, with that power that he holds. So, and I don't know that I needed the like twist to like show me 100% positive. Oh, he really was manipulating from a very early stage, like even before they had gotten to Saltburn. See, I think that he was manipulating to get close to Felix and that yielded the invitation to Saltburn. And then once he gets to Saltburn, yeah. he goes, you know what? I've set my sights too low. Right. It's not just Felix. It's access to this lifestyle for forever right and farley the american cousin says you know in many a couple of, and, the, and the sister in the bathtub yeah. you know right before she kills herself says the same thing you are visiting yeah you are not a resident right right every time he does that he ratchets up what he needs to do to become ultimately what he gains right because some friends of mine were like, you know, no, he had a he had a plan from the beginning. I don't know. I don't think he knew Saltburn. I don't think he understood what Saltburn was. Yeah. How, Saltburn being many things, but number one, the largest example of the amount of wealth available. And but Saltburn itself is this fantasy land. The, the parents who are there full time live these bizarre fantasy worlds. The father is. He's got so much money. He, he I, I don't know if he still even has an an income or a job, but right. he gets so excited because they're going to have a costume party, and he gets to wear his suit of armor, <laughs> and that becomes like such a highlight in his life. Yeah, rather than I disclose another multi billion business deal. Right, it's, it's, right. No, it's just like. Oh, good. A party smashing. You know, yeah. oh, the, the way we dine with the butler taking our egg order, but the rest of it being on the sideboard is we have earned this level of bourgeois, yeah. you know, existence that that alone in itself is very, very exciting. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you're no. visiting that, you know, maybe maybe you save up for a luxury vacation and you have a taste yeah. of it, but then you go back to your quote unquote real life. And but to have that full time yeah. was just so intoxicating. Well, but. and I think it's I think it's a pretty logical extension from like, OK, look, here is this working class, middle class. You know, like we said, he's he's kind of presenting himself one way. Probably the reality is closer to middle class young man going to this elite institution the hope is he is going to step up the social he mm -hmm. may be able to use this to step up the social ladder while some might want to do that through business or industry he sees this other route to it right and it kind of and it kind of makes sense in that way like it that, you know that would be almost anybody's goal entering into oxford from that kind of position like oh i'm hoping this is going to put me into a better place than where i started so that makes sense I think that w what you say, Joe, makes sense to me, too. Like, I don't know that he needed to necessarily have the Saltburn idea, although through the voiceover, especially at the end when he talks about, like, the motivation there that he he hated uh, Felix and that, mm -hmm. you know, the love was actually for Saltburn and that it was, you know, it was actually this. He does at some point make that switch. But, you know, wh when that happened, when he showed up at Saltburn, when he met Felix and would it have been any estate? Could it have been any house? Whatever. I mean, like, who, who knows when the when the switch actually happened for him where he's like, OK, this yeah. is my new goal now. But whenever it happened, it happened where I get a little bit up in my feelings or, or, or you know, I think, OK, for one, I don't know that twist was necessary. So I I, I feel like that has a little bit of a hollowness well, to it. The twist was but, always there. The, the the way it's displayed, the way that it's well, that's presented. It. That's it. Like, I don't I don't have any problem with, with us realizing that he's the manipulator and he's trying to get his way here. But I just don't think I think we already know that. I don't think we need the like 
fake twist at the end. I'm with you. But the other thing is, this starts out as sort of a dark comic social satire that's about the detachment and, and the sort of the strange life that these elites live, what you just described of the father where yeah. he he doesn't make money. He just has so much money that all he does is get excited about wearing his suit of armor to a party. You know, like that was, you know, funny and, and it was captivating and it was like, oh, yeah, let's take down these rich people or, or, you know, through comedy, through this kind of dark comedy. When at a certain, you know, by the end of the film, you're kind of left, if not with some sympathy for them. At least a certain degree to which, well, they weren't the worst people in this film, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really Oliver who's the nastiest here. It's the social climber. It's the one who wants that position, who doesn't have it yet, who will take down anybody in his way to get there that is the monster in the film, right? Agree. Yeah. So then, then I'm just feeling like, what's the commentary? Is being being spoiled makes you a monster, then they're monsters. Mm -hmm. But. You know, Felix didn't know anything different growing up. I mean, right. the, the life that you're born into isn't chosen. It's, you know, that's what it yeah, is. So right. the other problem I had with it was that while what eventually we learn in this twist, how they are executed, Felix murder, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. It's poisoned with the. Yeah. The he leaves the champagne the bottle, bottle there in his hand. Yeah. And then uh, assisting, not a murder, but assisting a suicide by leaving razor blades mm-hmm. out to a highly unstable yeah. there you go the, the the girl in the bathtub it's pulling out okay so years go by oliver we learn i did like in the twist that he's sitting over there typing on his laptop in the coffee shop to bump into the mother and yes. he's just typing gibberish to make it look like he's working on a laptop that i like that shot but he runs into the mother at a coffee shop of course it is orchestrated by oliver to run into her yeah after the death of her husband and from there, you know, they get a relationship going and then she leaves Saltburn to to him. And then she's on her deathbed with a breathing machine. Yeah. With the, the Right, right, right. Yeah. And then he pulls the tube out. Yeah. Now that the doctors are gonna say, Where's her breathing tube? <laughs> Agreed. That 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 one struck me where I'm like, That's clumsy. Why mm-hmm. why would you make- and, and he got away with it. Yeah. We, right. we see that he got away with it. Right. That's the other only other large fault in the film. The rest of it though is so visually exciting. The dialogue is so well written. The the, the acting, the cinematography, as I spoke of. You know. I think I think the strength here is the performances. Like we, you know, go, going back to what we said early on, I think that Kagan makes the character work, even though there I have these misgivings with what the motivation is, when it kicks in, what it means. Even like I say, with like if this is satire, what are we satirizing by the end of this film? Mm-hmm. Where we, you know, what is that satire at that point? Are we are we making fun of people who want to climb the social ladder? Or are we saying that they're all evil? But you know, all that aside, Kagan sells it for me big time. W- watching this film, he really has, especially early in the film, this kind of charm and innocence about him that I think made me like him and made me want his character to become friends with Felix and made me happy for him when he was getting the invitation and all that kind of stuff. But then, like I say, as things start turning and as you start seeing him do these things, you start reading those kind of more creepy kind of twisted elements into that character and the way he's presenting himself and the things he's saying. And he's not really doing all that much to alter his performance, but he's just that good at, I think, pulling off something that can be kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, bivalent, right? It has two kind of meanings to the things he's saying or the or the actions he's taking. And I, I think that's amazing. I think he he really and we're going to talk about another film in the second half 
where I think some of that same thing Agreed. is on display in, in his performance in yeah. that one. So he gets Saltburn and celebrates by dancing nude <laughs> through the mansion. Yeah. Which is mirrored from an earlier scene where he first gets to the mansion and Felix is taking him through the mansion, kind of giving him a tour on the way. To on the like nonchalant tour. Like sure. this is the green room. Everything's green. Both of those tours are single take long camera shots right. through the hallways. Right. The second one, though, Keegan does it fully nude. <laughs> he sure does. Why? After we've already been told earlier in the film that he's he's uh, well endowed. Because that, because when he shows up nude in the field, scene. yeah, they're like, congratulations. You don't, you don't wear trunks in the field. Yeah. And they're all nude. Yeah. And he takes his trunks off and you see him from behind. You yeah. see his naked buttocks. Yeah. Uh, and then the, all the other guys are like, "Ooh, congrats!" You yeah. know, you're you're packing, whatever yeah. it is. But now we get to see it. <laughs> Prost- prosthetic or not? I doubt it. Okay. I, mean, I I don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, hadn't, it's I not, hadn't done the research. It's not unheard of. Boogie Nights, etc. No, it's happened. But um, he's flailing around with that thing. It's so flailing around. They'd have to get a really good tight fit on that. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. We've seen male nudity. We've seen an increase in male nudity, actually, in the last five, seven years, yeah. especially on streaming shows and things like that. But that long tracking shot and seeing it for so long, I guess it's kind of the first time I've seen anything like that. Yeah. But the two scenes that, I mean, we just have to discuss because everyone else is discussing. Uh-huh. Them. They share that bathroom, and they sh- there's a old you know, centuries old bathtub or whatever in there, clawfoot old bathtub, and um, he's peeking through his bathroom door that leads to Oliver is peeking through his bathroom door that leads to his bedroom because he hears we believe, and then it's confirmed that Felix is is masturbating in the tub, right? And then he gets out of the tub and drains the water, and before the water can all drain and Felix is safely out of the bathroom, Oliver goes in and begin like as the the last bit of water is leaving the tub uh begins kind of like putting his face all in it and that's and and, and, and slurping and then eventually slurping but not before rimming the drain which looks just it's a drain in a tub it mm-hmm. is but yeah. it just looks so graphically sexual the entire thing yeah uh, there were four to five people in the very back row of the theater. And I kind of, in my imagination, assumed that one of them had seen it and drugged the other friends with them. Okay. And they were just giggling <laughs> so loud, which um, I think helped the atmosphere of the entire theater. But going back to my first story about my friend, it's like, I've never seen anything like this. It did kind of help break the tension of something that is on film, on mainstream film that you go down to the cinemark to see yeah nothing i'd ever seen nothing like yeah, that i ever yeah. seen before yeah i'm a, and, it, and it just it's a very long take it doesn't sure. end quickly it, sure. it, he's really relishing you know how close he is to felix at this moment yes that is, that is one of the strange moments in the well i say strange but i like one of the charged moments charged there say. you go and and one that sort of reinforces that sense of homoeroticism in the film. The no one doubt. that one that kind of like, okay, no, he really is there for Felix. Mm-hmm. Like, he really is being attracted. This is as close maybe he's going to get to what his goal might be, which is a sexual relationship. Right. Though then we do get another charged moment just after the funeral when, when uh, Felix has been laid to rest. And, you know, when you have that, the mound of earth that's yeah, been clearly put- he's buried on property, which right. you can imagine would be the case. And in the rain, you know, uh, Oliver goes out there and sort of disrobes and lays atop the pile and fornicates with the dirt, you mm-hmm. know, like thrusts into the, to the dirt. While screaming in agony. Yeah. Which again, so 
I'm not sure. How do you that that's one of the questions that I'm left with is like, what what are these scenes telling me about this character? Because clearly where we end is that no Saltburn was the goal. Saltburn was the real love. Mm -hmm. Saltburn was the thing that he wanted. I think in that moment he was still in love with the thing that he got. So you think there was a true love for Felix evolved and it evolved, but he still had this true desire for Felix. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then in between the two scenes that we just kind of went over, uh, he seduces the sister. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah, that, begins, you know, trying to touch her goodies down below. And she's like, oh, it's not the right time of the month for that. Yeah. And I guess in like this, I want you so badly that nothing's going to stop me. Yeah. He, you know, begins kind of touching her with his hand and then you see the blood on his hand and then he begins wiping it on her face uh-huh. and then sticks his fingers in her mouth and then begins kissing her. And there are certain things that seem to be verboten in American film and, you know, yeah, big pictures of menstruations are one of them. <laughs> I, I'm all into normalizing it because come well, on. Right. No, I mean, but that's just something I've never seen before. And clearly the audience was squirming. The kids in the back were giggling. Yeah. And, you know, everyone in that theater was uncomfortable in that moment. Yeah. I think Fennel is trying to do some things here with kind of eroticism, sexual desire. And in this case, at least, you know, desire for wealth and money and resources and, and sort of twisting them together to an extent, but also putting on display a much more heightened, yeah. charged, and somewhat, you know, I think to some audiences, button-pushing version no of doubt. eroticism. No doubt. It confirms my thoughts that I like button-pushing. I like it when we go to a place we've never seen. Yeah. It's my favorite part of Basic Instinct for the not even the obvious reasons, <laughs> and really censors what is so filthy about this. Yeah. Why, you know, yeah. Why a man shirtless PG, a woman shirtless rated R? I mean, yeah. where do these conceits come from? Why are we still enforcing them? So anytime yeah. a filmmaker can artfully, I was going to say tastefully, but that's really not the right choice of words. <laughs> it, I liked every bit Though of I those. Think that, I liked every bit I of mean, that. You, you say that as a joke, but I think it's notable that it is so like it is so much around food, food. And eating is sort of one of the little like recurring motif, you know, like he, when he talks about that the, the runniness of eggs makes him ill mm-hmm. when it, when he's slurping the bath water, when he mm-hmm. goes down. I didn't you know, think like, about that. There's all these moments in the film that are about ingesting things and what they do. And a so, lot of vomit in the movie. Yeah. So much so that I thought. Clearly, one of the themes here is getting out of you things that don't belong well, inside Venetia's of you. Yeah, you know, that, that's but just like the party scene where there's a long yeah. shot of vomit on a mirror in a sink, but yeah. the shot is about what's in the reflection of the mirror, mm-hmm. but it lingers there for so long, yeah. and the vomit is so lifelike accurate yeah. that it gets a little nauseating. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I think, again, Fennel is is somebody to watch, somebody who has some interesting ideas about how to show things, what to show, how to use these different things that, like you say, are, you know, real parts of everyday life that, that people experience, but that we don't see depicted on screen in this way very often. And so, yeah, I mean... Even as we've talked through it, I think I've gotten even more positive on the film. Even my misgivings on the weirdness of that twist at the end, the the misgiving on what we really end up on with the satire, 
I still think this is a film that that it's it's less about pat conclusions. It's more about giving us a lot of food for thought. I admire our local Cinemark for giving it to us because Alamo did not. Yeah. And I was a little bummed about that because that, that's the art film right up Alamo's alley. But it got to the point to where they were showing it one screening a night at 1130. Yeah. And then tonight is the last one. Tonight yeah. is the last chance. Oh, is it? Yeah, tomorrow we saw Burns not even on the schedule. Oh, wow. So if you are in a larger market and have an opportunity to see this, I would go. And I'm bummed that I have missed the opportunity to see it again on the theater, maybe in my local market. Yeah. I would like to see have, have seen this one twice. I would yeah. really would have. Well, it'll be interesting to see. This may be one that gets into that short list of, you know, best film uh, nominees. It, maybe when the we'll Oscars come around and maybe another, Cinemark will pick sure. it up for another few showings then. But you're right. I mean, it, it probably will. And even if it's doing better in some of the larger markets, my guess is it's still going to be a fairly limited. I don't I don't well, think so much stuff around. is coming yeah, into the yeah, real estate yeah, of yeah. the Christmas time after hours topic. I have yeah. all this good stuff that we've sure. seen recently and is coming right now. Yeah. It's a bounty of riches at the cinema. Yeah. Well, it's a bounty of riches in my glass. God with dang, yes. This Framrude from Funk Factory Guzaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe. All those things that we were saying about the aroma, about about the look of it, about how we, I guess I said that I felt like, uh, you know, we've poured a Jester King libation here uh, for this half of the episode. It's all true. Um, I, I think it's not precisely Jester King, but they're doing this in Wisconsin. I mean, th- this is right, Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, definitely... A little higher in the acidity than I think most Jester King beers are. I'm getting a little bit more of a, of a straightforward sourness. It's the, j- the jaw hands. Yeah. This took two sips, two good sips to yeah. get acclimated to what was in the glass. Mm-hmm. But once I did, I, I don't want it to end. Yeah. But the raspberries there and it's beautiful and it's yeah. helping balance that acidity with some sweetness. Mm-hmm. Um, the presence of all that raspberry, it's not like a slushy. No. It, don't think that. It's no. just you can tell that there is fruit matter in here. But not in an obnoxious way. It gives it a mouthfeel that's really also, I think, adding to the experience. Yeah. This comes in at 6%, which I like. That's a region that I'm happy in, and especially to kind of start things off for the evening. I think this was a great choice to go along with a film uh, of such kind of uh, refined setting. There you go. Salt burn. Sure. Yeah. So much we could have talked about, too. This movie des- deserves a lot of a lot of conversation. Yeah, I mean, w- I think uh, had we had a third guest here, I don't know, this this segment could have gone on for hours. Yeah, m- many more questions, maybe. But um, I think there may be some other questions that we have to ponder with our second film, another film featuring a really interesting performance from Kagan when we get back from the break. You know, like I said, as we were going into the break, we're going to be looking at another film with a with a standout Kagan performance. Before we get there, though, we need beer in our glasses. We know this, folks. Um, and I brought a beer with me today that I've long enjoyed uh, around the end of the year holiday season. Mm-hmm. Kind of not because it's necessarily a, a seasonal tie in, but just that's when that's the season it gets released. This is from the brewery Stone, which we have had on the podcast several times in the past. They are based out of California. 
And the beer that I'm talking about here is their Chocoveza. That's with an, an X at the beginning. I, I hope I'm getting the pronunciation somewhat correct. Yeah, it says Chocoveza. It, it even tells you how to pronounce it on the can. This is their attempt to do an imperial stout that is inspired by Mexican hot chocolate. Wow, so you got me. It's, it's a stout brewed with chocolate, coffee, pasilla peppers, vanilla, cinnamon, and nutmeg. So again, it has some of those spices that you would associate with holidays, you know, the nutmeg, the cinnamon, the pasilla pepper, bringing in like how you might have more of a spicy uh, Mexican hot chocolate kind of element there. Like I say, it's one that I have enjoyed for years. I don't know exactly the first year it was released, but I feel like I've been having this for well over a decade on, on an almost annual basis when it comes around. And I was surprised when I looked through our master beer list that we did not have this already crossed off our dance card. So let us get some Chocoveza in our glasses. Dancing with Chocoveza tonight. Yeah. How many annual beers do you have in your arsenal? In other words, it's that time of the year. Chocoveza is going to be on the shelves when it's usually not. I'm definitely picking a little bit up. Do you have mm-hmm. a lot of those? I have a handful. I mean, another one at the end of the year that I look forward to that I haven't landed any of yet. I I was trying to actually when I went to the store and I ended up picking up this was the Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale, Mm -hmm. which is an IPA that they do right around the holidays. I've always enjoyed that. You know, the Pumpkinator is kind of one that I'll usually get my hands on a bottle of during the um, the, the Halloween season because that that comes around and that one's from St. Arnold's and that's kind of a Texas brew. Yeah, I mean, so there's a few here or there, but but this is one of the more prominent. Are there are there any in your the first one that leaps to mind is Bell's Christmas Ale, that Scotch oh, Ale that okay. I really like. Yep, yep, and uh, yep. you know what, I haven't picked it up yet, and it's time to. Yeah. So mental just, note, mental note. <laughs> okay, the second film that we're going to discuss today, as you said, also starring Barry Cake Keegan, is Yorgos Lanthimos's second English speaking film, but his sixth sixth film in his. Ovoir called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, mm-hmm. following The Lobster. Yes. Lobster 2015, 2017, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Dr. Stephen Murphy, played by, oh my God, I'm having a brain Colin fart. Farrell, who was also in The Lobster, so carried over there. Dr. Stephen Murphy is a renowned cardiovascular surgeon who presides over a spotless household with his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, and two children, a young son and a daughter. Lurking at the margins of his idyllic suburban existence is Martin, as the Keegan character, a fatherless teen who insinuates himself into the doctor's life in gradually unsettling ways. Soon, the full scope of Martin's intent becomes menacingly clear when he confronts Stephen with a long-forgotten transgression that will shatter Stephen's domestic bliss forever. Good summary. Well, thank you, IMDb. The first shot of this film, David, is an open heart surgery. Sure is. A still frame into a beating heart that of a chest cavity that is held open by the metal, whatever they call those things. And it sits on the screen for, I don't know, a minute. Yeah. A long, long minute when you're eating Thai food. (laughs) (laughs) You you didn't order the heart uh, that that night, did you? Is your protein? No, it would have been a perfect pairing. Yeah. And then the film... (laughs) Begins by showing this, as the summary says, idyllic life of the doctor and his wife. They're clearly well off. They have a beautiful home. He's working in a top-rated hospital, it seems like. Beautiful facility. But the first thing that I notice is the dialogue. 
and how just it's just made up of declarative sentences. There is zero kind of emotional fluff in any conversation. Right. Neither in the vocabulary or the performance. No, right. No, right. it's all deadpan, you yes. know. And then you see that the doctor has got what is clearly a secret relationship with Martin, mm-hmm. who how, how old would you suggest he is in the film? I mean, teens, I yeah, think he's, he's supposed to be. He's driving. Even, so. even though I do think Kagan was probably close to 20 at least. Well, he was like 25. Up. I looked it 25? up. 25? He was okay. playing like a 16-year-old, yeah. 17-year-old. He, he has a youthful look. He does. Yeah. And then the dialogue is the same thing. It's just them declaring it. And I think that the doctor sees another doctor have a nice watch, and then he goes and picks up a gift of this clearly expensive watch for martin and there's discussion of which type of band band you should use leather or metal and then it's all very just clinical yeah you're confused i'm confused (laughs) from the very beginning of what what's the nature of this relationship with martin what's what's is this the real world are these real people you know and and then the story kicks in and and completely engaging don't get me wrong that that is not a criticism what i just said it's just presenting something different yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from, Joe. So, you know, we we reviewed The Favorite when that came out, which is also I Universal Love that movie. Movies. I don't believe that he, well, he co-wrote this one as well. So Killing of a Sacred Deer, he co-wrote with another uh, Greek filmmaker, Ephthemus Philippou, mm-hmm. uh, who, who he had also worked on, I believe, The Lobster yes. with. And he had done his film Dogtooth, which was one that he still made in Greek, or, you know, in, in mm-hmm. Greece, in the Greek language. So that they had worked together. This was, I guess, their third collaboration on a script together. The favorite, did you see? Is it? Who, no, that's a was screenplay it, by, he wasn't involved, Deborah right. Davis and Tony McNamara. That's what I thought. So he, he got onto that project. So as much as there were some elements of Lanthimos that I see in the favorite, there's something else going on here that I was familiar with more from The Lobster, which we didn't review on on, on the podcast. No. But, um, Poor Things has leapt to the top of the list of the <laughs> movies that I want to see, so yeah. that might be an opportunity. Three Lothamos films yeah. in just a few weeks. That would be exciting, um, but definitely want to see Poor Things. But there, there is a sort of a carryover. It's, it's interesting that he seems to have... That, that's part of his style. Now, even in The Favorite, I think some of what we've remarked about, some of what people remarked about is, is the performances that he gets out of actors, that they do tend to have this kind of oddness to them. And, and that, that sometimes a line that you feel like would require a certain kind of delivery will instead have something either more restrained or mm-hmm. more, you know, whatever. And here he's clearly going for that heavy restraint. I mean, even when they're saying things that should be very charged, like about life or death issues as, as the film goes on, or, you know, like somebody, they're, they're delivered very plainly, very matter of factly, very deadpan. You know, the thing that strikes me in this film, and, and it's kind of at a similar time, you know, like you say, you open on the beating heart and then you cut to that hallway, or, or I think there's him pulling off the dirty scrubs and the, and throwing, the, the yeah, throwing the gloves in the trash or whatever. But then we have him walking with his colleague, the, the anesthesiologist who he works with, and they're talking about the watch. And you get that tracking shot done with a, an extreme wide angle lens that gives it this very kind of like distorted and kind of this, it makes this hall into this like grand space. And it's just a hospital hallway. Right. But it feels very kind of profound and, and 
voluminous and huge. And he uses those wide angle lenses again and again, especially when he's doing those tracking shots in hallways. He did that in the favorite as well. Yes. We remarked on that aspect of his visual style. He likes to camera the position really low sometimes, really high sometimes to give you these kind of unnatural vantages on things, almost like you're observing right. these characters as if they're like specimens in like a glass case or something. And you know, another scene that stood out to me fairly early on, there's like this awards dinner, this banquet that they're at. And the hall is just, you know, especially because they're treating it with a wide angle lens. It just looks vast and, right. and, you know, like as cavernous as a hall can be. And there is this kind of like putting these characters on display, like in an almost clinical, like scientific way, like they're being dissected for us. And literally at the beginning of the film... And given this character, you know, the lead character, Murphy, that uh, is played by uh, Colin Farrell, he is. He's dissecting people. That's what he's doing. Is he's mm-hmm. opening their bodies. He's taking things out, repairing things, doing whatever he's doing, sewing them back up. But, like, I feel like Lanthimos has kind of a similar feel as a director where he's, you know, sort of giving us this view, this inspecting the goods as we're kind of like piecing up, you know, together what's going on in this world that he's created for us. So after the action goes along for a while, all of a sudden their younger son, their younger child, their son, Bob, is... Uh, I, I love that they call the kid Bob. That's, that's a name, like my dad was a Bob. Okay. But... He was of the 50s. Like he grew up, you know, he was a kid in the 1950s. I think Bob was more, I don't think anybody uses the nickname Bob for Robert these days. So anyway, I the just, best I, Bob I love in that- South Texas is a breakfast on a bun from Whataburger. <laughs> sausage, sausage, Bob, bacon, Bob, go with sausage. There you go. But the, the young son is uh, all of a sudden loses the use of his legs. And they're both doctors. The, she's an ophthalmologist. They rush him to the hospital. And there's nothing medically wrong with him. That's when Martin, in that same cold, declarative way, with no real emotional reaction from the doctor, explains to the doctor, oh, yeah, by the way, you killed my father on the operating table and your son, daughter and wife are going to die. And it's going to happen like this. They will each be paralyzed. The second symptom is they will not eat. They will refuse food. The third symptom is they will bleed Bleed from the the eyes. eyes, And that means that they are very close to death. And it's going to happen to all of them. Did I say three? Yeah. There's four symptoms. Well, no, the fourth is death. So that you're, you're just, you get to death. Death is the largest symptom of death, David. <laughs> but, but yes. Not breathing. We, we, he lays it out very plainly. Lays it out. And, and the son is having those steps. Yeah. But the doctor is saying, no, medically, we've got to come up with a reason for it. And yeah. the wife, ophthalmologist, is saying, it's all, it, is agreeing with what must be the case. It must be psychosomatic because yeah. there's nothing medically wrong with this, right. with your child. Then the daughter becomes paralyzed and stops eating. Yeah. And then, you know, and here we go. Yeah. And then he says, here's how you stop this. Yeah. You, doctor, have to choose which of the three you're going to kill. And the moment that you do, everything is going to be fine. Yeah. What a, what a story. <laughs> I mean, what an interesting story, which I had to Google because what does killing of a sacred deer mean? And it turned, Right, because there's no deers in this film. There, are, there isn't. Yeah. And or deer, I should say. It comes down to... Iphigenia right. in Aulis. That's a, it's a Greek story. It's a tragedy yeah. by Euripides. Now, yeah. an article that I read said that it, it is even mentioned in the film, but I don't recall that from my viewing. Yeah. But uh, in other words, like Lathamos is not trying to hide it. Oh, no. And at some point, 
that he has gotten the source material for the idea here from, you know, Greek mythology. But then there is an interesting scene where he has, the doctor has kidnapped Martin and, you know, tied him down in the basement. And Martin says at that point, everything I'm saying right now is a metaphor. He uses the word a metaphor for a larger thing here. And he says, this is the closest I can come to justice yeah. for my dead father. What the film never talks about is the way that Martin has some kind of supernatural ability yeah. to create these symptoms in this family. Right. But that doesn't even need to be addressed. What's being addressed instead is the journey, I think, for many things, but one of them into emotion because finally we begin seeing emotion from the characters from the parents not the two children they're still coldly clinical about the entire thing right oddly coldly clinical yeah all of the pieces that i'm mentioning right now add to this dread yeah of the film as you watch it well and and i think you're absolutely right i mean part of it is the performance and and the lack of emotion part of it is the fact that the score is sort of filled with this sense of dread. It's a at, horror movie score. It, it absolutely is. And and at times really comes in. And I mean, what you would, what I would describe as a quite heavy handed way. But to me, it doesn't feel like a problem. I mean, again, like sometimes I get upset when filmmakers use score to guide my emotion too much. Like they want me to feel like this is an important moment. So they give me that triumphant music. Or the and I'm sting like, when the cat oh, jumps out of the cupboard for a really cheap yeah, jump scare. Oh, you're just screwing with me. But here it's being used as this kind of weird counterpoint where if you didn't have it, the creepiness would probably be there at some level. But it really just kind of tells you for certain, like, yeah, this isn't good, folks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I, I appreciated that. It was, it was something that I think without the characters emoting in the way that I was expecting them to, the soundtrack kind of helped pick some of that up and, and, and help guide me a little bit. And so I think that was kind of acceptable. In, we we in disagree a little bit. I thought this, okay, the soundtrack that was sometimes was distracting. I, but I kind of liked that it distracted okay. me at times. Like there were, there were times where it did. It got loud. It almost got hard to hear the sound mix. It got hard to make out what the characters are saying. I was times. writing the volume on this film. Yeah. I thought it was my television, but it wasn't. I yeah. read that many people had the same thing. He, it, he barrels in with those yeah. soundtrack cues sometimes. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just this you know, sense of like ominous dread that he's, he's sort of mm-hmm. putting in there. Like, no, this is real folks. It's, it's kind of like this reminder, like, no, this, <laughs> as much as, uh, Murphy, the doctor, the, the, the feral character might want to think that this is something that can be explained away, something that, you know, medical science can take care of, something that, you know, if he can just break them of this spell that they're, no, this is something he's going to have to deal with. And as fantastical as it seems that this young teenage boy could sort of, cast this spell on the family or whatever it is that you know that that produces it that's yeah i was like if they're gonna if it's gonna turn out that he's like a satan worshiper or has got some kind of voodoo shit in his house i'm really not gonna like that i enjoyed that it was never explained how this is happening me too me too uh there's two things though that i wanted to work through with you number one was the relationship between martin and colin farrell in that clinical way where it starts off he eventually invites Martin to his home for dinner <laughs> and the kids go off like kids do. And they're in a room together. Yeah. And the little boy asks Martin, who's a little bit older, have you gone through puberty? Do you have hair on your yeah. chest or you I have hair in my on armpits? armpits yeah. Oh, can I see it? And he shows him later though. He's recounting that story to the doctor when they're in private. <laughs> and he says, uh, this, your son says you have three times as much hair and you're real hairy. Can I see? And without 
any reservation, he just kind of picks up his shirt, untucks his shirt because he's yeah. dressed in a suit and shows him, you know, here's my armpits, here's my hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, you are a lot hairier. But not three times. There's a strange relationship there, which I can only imagine is the doctor trying to take a, a younger man who had lost his father on the operating table when he was operating on him. Although there is a story that he crashed into a telephone pole. That's what he tells well, the wife tells at the beginning, wife, but that's a lie. That's a lie. Okay. Yeah. That is just so odd. It yeah. is so, it's presented as odd, but it's also presented as matter of fact. Yeah. So it's a weird balance there. Well, he's very deferential to him, even from the get go, right? When he gives him the watch, you know, the part of why they're talking about the band is because the, the Kagan character, no, Martin? Uh, Martin doesn't like the band. He wants a different band on it. And mm-hmm. like, you know, okay, this doctor has just given you this very nice watch as a gift and your response is this band isn't good enough for me what am i going to get you know what i mean like and instead of feral being like okay you ungrateful piece of shit like you know like he's like oh yeah you could get whatever band you want Mm -hmm. you know like and i think to me that's sort of like well uh you know that there clearly is this sense of guilt that murphy has right i mean that he knows he was somehow culpable even if he claims that he does that he didn't even if he claims one one of the other funny bits in the film i mean let me just say this film is funny if you can get past how strange it is. Right. I mean, it is a dark, dark comedy. You know, when he's talking to Kidman, you know, his wife, and saying like, well, a cardiologist can never kill a patient. An anesthesiologist can. Right. But a, a cardiologist never. And then later when she's talking to the, uh, uh, the anesthesiologist, it's, well, a cardiologist can kill a patient. An anesthesiologist can never kill a patient. <laughs> a, it's just before after she's giving him a hand job. That's a in little the car before. <laughs> in, in return for the anesthesiologist breaking every ethical rule about client confidentiality. Right. right yeah. In the most dispassionate way you could give yeah. the, the hand job in yeah. the car. This is a hand job, hand job heavy episode. Yeah. Us. Yeah. Well, if only we still did titles. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to, you to help me work through was the sex life between Nicole oh, Kidman that was... and Colin Farrell. She goes, uh, do you want me to do the anesthesiologist tonight? Which is clearly a thing on their menu yeah. where she acts as if she's been anesthetized yeah. and is unconscious. While well, I guess we don't see the sex, but he does. Climbs up atop her while right. she's kind of just yeah reclined back. But then later in the film, when the daughter kind of presents herself, She's kind of doing the same thing for for uh, Martin. Yeah, right. I mean, there there's a certain like echo uh, of of that, which is but this, everything's so passionless. Yeah, everything is so detached. Well, that's it. I mean, when she tries to seduce Martin, right? The daughter we're talking about, because Martin strikes up a relationship with their daughter. Yeah, and she really you have a great likes body. Him. Yeah, she tells him after seeing it. Right. And he tells her the same, but then like very dispassionately just, I've got to go. You know what I mean? Even though this girl has like disrobed in front of him, is presenting herself for him. He just simply, okay, I, it, it's time for me to go. It, yeah, it's an interesting uh, mix. That, I don't know exactly what I think it's saying about human sexuality in the way that it presents it in this I film. think it's just another enforcement that they are so detached from everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know there's a larger connection here to the entire story. Yeah. Which is what? I mean, what is the theme here? Justice through any means necessary? Or those who think their life is perfect will eventually find 
something that tears it all well, apart. I think, I think in part, I mean, I, you know, again, and I have not read the Euripides play, I, mm-hmm. I, I can't, so I can't speak exactly to that. But I think, you know, a story like this, to me, has a lot to say about how you never really escape what you're guilty of, right? Like if, if, if the doctor did this thing and is feeling this guilt, there's going to be a price to pay for it. And he can try to avoid it and he can try to pretend it's not happening and he can try to pretend that he doesn't have any debt to pay, but ultimately the piper comes calling mm-hmm. and he's going to have to pay it. You and know, your kid's eyes are going to bleed. Yeah. Right. When, and when the piper comes calling. Yeah. Mom, Bob's dying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know he's oh. he's given this Sophie's choice of you have to kill one of these people for it all to end and you know he approaches it clinically talks to his wife I think we got to kill Bob I think Bob's the one that would probably make the most sense she says that because we yeah. can have another child yeah so he does it in a way where he ties everybody up uh, they're in three different chairs in the living room he's got his hunting rifle which is the closest thing to hunt a deer yeah, that I can think right, of in the whole right. thing and uh, he puts a bag over his head or a ski mask over his face where he can't see and just start spinning and shooting randomly yeah there are two shots fired never does someone scream right right never does anyone nor are they crying whimpering yeah i mean like no they just very stoically sit in the chairs awaiting their fate and eventually bob is shot right cut to the three of them the remaining three of the family going to dinner at the diner where he and martin used to meet yeah why would he ever go there ever again in his life where martin comes in they all stare at one another and then they slowly leave and the film is over right it's a thinker yeah a very interesting movie yeah i think this is a great film i because for for a few reasons one of them being you're not going to see another film like this folks this is a singular kind of thing this is now, I've seen Lo- The Lobster, this, and The Favorite. I've seen his English language films, Mike's and I'm looking forward to see Poor Things. I have not gone back and seen the Greek language films. I need to. Yeah. I know that Dogtooth especially is one that people have said is very worth seeing. Alps is another one that I've heard good things. Of. So I, I would like to see those two. I have a feeling, though, we would see some similar things going on in there, although I don't know if the performance stuff would come across as clearly, given that it was in a different language that I'm not familiar with. But these films have a very singular kind of feel to them that I think um, that alone is worth checking out. But beyond that, I mean, it is probing these things about guilt and about morality and about what one does when faced with seemingly, you know, uh, situations where there's no good answer. There's no good, like you're told you're going to have to kill one of these three people who you love, who's in your family. Or they'll all die. Or they'll all die, right? So it's it's one of those philosophical conundrums. Like, what do you do if if you're told that you if you kill your son or daughter that one thousand people will live because you've done this act? Otherwise, those thousand people are going to perish. But this person goes, "What do you do? Do you kill the person close to you, or do you let those thousand people die?" You know, the, the, these kind of questions that we'll pose to ourselves every once in a while to try to think through. What is, you know, what is the right answer here? It's the greater good or is it the ones you love? Is it the, you know, these kind of things. So I love a movie that kind of pushes us in that direction. And this film does that. And I think I'll go to the to the guy who I I give credit to for Saltburn having that film. I think Farrell does a great job here, no doubt. And and I think all the performers do a great job here in holding together this performance style that Lanthimos asks. I'll give special props to the kids. They're great. Right. But Kagan 
is exactly <laughs> what I was talking about in that first one, where there are moments in this film where he feels so naive and innocent and sweet. And, and he has this like kind of, it's not a lisp, but he's almost got this, like he builds up a little too much saliva in his mouth as he's speaking. And he kind of, and he'll repeat a word a couple times as he's saying it that in some scenes will come off as very sweet and, and like, Oh, poor guy. Like he's not quite there socially or something, but then in others, it's like terrifying and, Mm -hmm. and off, offsetting and cold and strange. And, and he just walks that line in that scene that you're talking about where he lays out the rules of this game that's going to be played, where you either kill one of these people or they're going to experience a series of symptoms that's going to lead to their death. And it's just done in such a matter of fact way. Oh, I got to get going. And, mm-hmm. and then like, you know, just and, takes then, and, then, and then the the father lets him go. Yeah. Instead of what the hell are you talking about? Right. How can this possibly be? Right. Where are you getting these power? None of those questions are asked. It's just yeah. so matter of a fact, matter of fact. And again, there I can chalk it up to like, which how would you even believe it if somebody was saying these like, what are you talking? This kid is touched. He, he, he has something wrong with him. He, he And he tries to oppose it. Mm-hmm. When he says these are the symptoms, number one, paralysis, number two, can't eat. Well, he's going to say, no, 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 this can't be true. The mother yeah. shows up when the son is in the hospital with a box of donuts <laughs> and he's cr- trying to well, cram right the donut. Well, well it, right after he's been told that is when he walks back yeah, to the, the like, room and they say, true. eat the fucking he doesn't donuts. Eat. He, he doesn't, doesn't want to eat because that's too much emotion. No, you need to eat. Like, eat this. You're going to eat this. I want this part box of, of donuts finished in five minutes. And yeah. then he's like, I don't, I'm not hungry. I don't want it. He's like, so he starts to cram the donut in his mouth. And I'm talking about some when i say the kids deserve kudos for the yeah. acting the son it's just it is so natural and believable yeah but you don't believe a thing you're seeing no. at the same time that's yeah. what makes it i think the movie so interesting agreed very agreed. good yeah hey, no. two good ones this week well and and like you say it really sets the stage for poor things in a, in a way which i was already excited about and keegan um, and Farrell working together in banshees you know i, I yeah i had seen this movie before but i didn't put all those pieces together okay i'd like to think that one or the other help the one or the other get the part for that other movie, which I know the two of us well, really both enjoy. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, Farrell had the relationship with McDonough from doing In Bruges uh, together, so I would I would of imagine course. if anything that maybe consider McDonough Keegan had, had at least become aware of Keegan yeah, from seeing Killing of the Sacred Deer. So very yeah, good. yeah, very good, Great good, stuff. good, good movies this week. Yeah, absolutely good. And movies. we love the first beer. We love the first beer, Framrude. Joe, what are you feeling on the show? I can see why you're buying this every year. And Stone, I've said it before, not one of my favorite breweries for craft. I've, you know, maybe a little bit too big. Some of that declining return. I don't like everything that I have from them. But, you know, I'm not feeling a lot of the pepper, though. When you said pepper up top, I I, I was expecting a little bit of, but I'm not getting most of that. Yeah, I'll say I, I think this is a good beer. Okay. I think it used to be a great beer. I mm. and, it, and this is one of those. I know we've talked about this before. I don't know if it's my palate has changed over time, okay, or if their recipe has changed. Yeah, but I feel like I used to detect a little bit more of the pepper. Okay, in there. I feel like it used. So you're to, with me though. There's not a lot of pepper. I there. feel like it used to have a little bit more of a chocolatey. I mean, there's chocolate, but I feel I feel like at one time it was a little more heavy on the chocolate presence there was that pepper note in there to kind of balance it out and it was one of those beers that i looked forward to because of that interesting complex interplay of the sweet and the spicy 
and that it was this like, oh, I got to get my hands on that. It's so much fun. It was even one that I would even hold on to a can or two or that used to be bottles only, but a bottle or two to kind of drink a few months after to see if maybe it would level off a little bit because the spice would almost be too much out of the can. I'm not getting that now. I do, I do not get the the spice note that I once did. I'm getting a more muted chocolate note out of it. It's still a good imperial stout. It's uh-huh. 8.1%. I don't think this is a beer that you should avoid, but I do think it's a beer that if you're somebody who's been a fan of this for a decade or more, or you're you know, buying it long anyway. you're probably buying it anyway. Just but, to go on the journey. But you're maybe feeling like it's not quite as good as it, what it was. was. Yeah, a little thin for an imperial too, mouthfeel-wise, but yeah. um, I, I would definitely order this at a, at a craft beer bar if it was available. Yeah, I think there's some on tap at Tapology, actually. I'm headed there as soon as we get done recording. <laughs> but we're not done recording because we no, have after hours still. We do. And you can find that over at patreon.com slash beer and a movie podcast. We've talked about it a couple times already. That's the other place to go to hear sometimes what the next week movies are going to be. But also sometimes us figuring out what the next movies are going to be. I think that we might have a little bit of that conversation today. Not for next week because we know we've, that's locked in. But the following couple of weeks with all this stuff coming out yeah. here at the end of the year. And that's only one of the places where the conversation doesn't end now that Beer in a Movie is wrapping up. You can catch us at beerinamoviepodcast.com. There is a fantastic link to a our merch store. Christmas is coming up. Go check it out. Get your, get your loved ones all the t-shirts, mugs, and koozies that they need for the holidays. They can never have too many. And this one is super, super cool. But we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of those places. And then on Discord. Now, that's a fun place to go. The way to find us, if you search it, is Beer in a Movie, The Conversation Continues. But if you have trouble, some people do, just send us a DM at any of the other places and we will get that invitation to you. Okay, well, then this has been a Barry Keegan bizarre-filled episode. (laughs) And until next week. I can honestly say that these last few months have been the happiest of my life. Thank you.